It's from a Navi Krishnadas, and he says, um, Guru Maharaj, in some Vaishnav books, I've, I've read uh, Tulsi Maharani is a forest gopi. Does that mean she is someone like a nymph? Okay. So the question is about uh, Tulsi Maharani. Tulsi Maharani, Tijai. What's another name for Tulsi? It's Brinda, and Brindavan is named after her. So she grows profusely in the Brindavan area. Her prominence as a plant whose leaves are offered uh, to Krishna, to Narayan, is um, more relative to Kavaiti Bhakti um, understanding where in Archon is more prominent. As I sometimes said, the prominent angas or limbs of Bhakti um, in our Sampradaya are three and a half. Smarnam, Shravanam, Kirtan, Smarnam, and Arjunam is the half. That's uh, not, that's to say it's not as prominent as it is in Vaidhi Marg. And uh, so there's this uh, song about Tulsi and uh, being offered to, uh, to Narayan and, and him not accepting offerings uh, that don't have Tulsi or one out of 64 or something he'll offer, something to that effect. But um, that said, the understanding of, of Tulsi with regard to the, the Radhamarg is um, more the identification of her with Vrinda, Gopi. She is then the Gopi who is in charge of the forests. <clears throat> so all the, all the fauna and the, um, uh, the animals and the birds and the uh, flora and fauna uh, are all under her direction. She guides them, orchestrates their their movements and so forth for the service of Radha and Krishna. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, typically, throughout the literature, the Leela Grantas of the Goswamis, she's uh, depicted as practically uh, living in the forest and a along with Purnamasi, a kind of a manifestation of the Shakti, of Yoga Maya, uh, and so forth. At the same time, in his Radha Krishna Gonadesh Deepika, Rupa Goswami identifies her with a particular family from um, um, Rishabhanu Maharaj's uh, area, father, mother, and so forth. I always found that a little peculiar uh, because she's never at home. <laughs> uh, so um, it, uh, I mean, he's mentioned that um, you may have drawn that from some Purana, which is the case with uh, a number of the different identifications there in, in Radha Krishna Ganadishtipika that he um, lists. <clears throat> but again, uh, for all intents and purposes, um, she functions like uh, a uh, forest-dwelling, magical uh, gopi orchestrating the movements of trees, the flowers, the deers, the, the birds, and so forth and so on, all in the uh, in the service of Radha and Krishna. So, Brinda Devi. And I mentioned a song that's popular with regard to Tulsi and the mention of um, her in relation to Narayan and so forth. This is a song that was uh, at least in the 20th century, 
was popularized by Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur and his mission. And on the other side, uh, in Vrindavan, the more popular song is the one that Prabhupada, uh, my Guru Maharaj, my Prabhupada uh, instituted, uh, describing Brinda Devi, appealing to Brinda Devi to uh, uh, give the petitioner a service in Braj, following in the footsteps of the Sakis and so forth. Um, so there, again, the emphasis is all on um, Brinda Devi as a gopi and a forest gopi, if you will, more than on uh, a plant with leaves and manjaris to offer and so forth. What else? Another question? Yeah, so um, the next question is from Linnea. Um, she's with Zakirati. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I was um, I'm very new to this, but I was thinking that you might be able to answer uh, answer this question. Sorry, I just got a little bit nervous. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of new to it, also. <laughs> in this uh, in this in this school, we're all students forever. So there's always, there's always something to learn. I'm sure I'll learn from something from your question. Yeah, I was saying uh, you're. Don't be nervous. Sorry? Yeah, I was Sorry, reading. Don't be nervous. <laughs> I was reading your commentary on the Bhagavad Gita and I've noticed that you've said experimental spiritual life a couple of times in there. And I would like to think that I get the gist of it, but I was wondering if you can um, evolve. That a little bit more elaborate. Sorry. Elaborate. The word I used was experiential spiritual life, right? Experiential, and that's a term I've coined, and I contrast it with social religious. So there's a social religious orientation to uh, a spiritual tradition, and then there's a spiritual experiential orientation to a tradition, whether it be Hinduism, whether it be Buddhism, whether it be Christianity, um, Islam. So, for example, in Islam, you have uh, people with a socio-religious orientation to religion. Their orientation to their religious or spiritual tradition is one that primarily, in their minds, serves as... Um, something that augments their social life. They have a religious orientation. So what I mean, what I mean to say by that is they have a life and they have a religion also. They have other things. They have a job. They have a wife. They have a family. They have a religion. So they factor spirituality into their everyday life and hope that by that, their everyday life will be better. Hmm? that's most people in Hinduism we call that a karmic kind of orientation but um, it's a it's a universal hmm? the vast majority of people are attached to a religious or a spiritual tradition in in a way that they primarily seek to improve by that their everyday life. Makes sense, right? Hmm? However, there are, to all of these traditions, there are also mystics who aren't that concerned with improving, augmenting their everyday life. And their everyday life is pretty much nothing like everybody else's everyday life. Everyday life, going shopping, finding a partner, raising children, worrying about, uh, you know, that you might lose your job or, or whatever may be the case. Um, 
mystics. Let's take Islam, for example. You have Sufis. Um, they're mystics. So there, or, or, or you take, uh, in Buddhism, you have the Buddha and then you have all kinds of people that practice Buddhism as a religion, but he's just sitting under a tree. Not like the average person just sitting under the, all you do is sit down. It's pretty easy to do Buddhism. You just have to sit. But it's not so easy, is it? Just to sit. Your mind makes us get up. The desires make us get up and become busy and preoccupied with so many uh, peripheral, uh, ephemeral concerns. The whole show, if you will, is here today and tomorrow or the next day it'll be gone. The sun will burn out. That's a much broader, broader uh, perspective, but it's true. And so the more one becomes a transcendentalist in their orientation, the more, the least, less they are concerned with improving the world and solving the problems of the world. Instead, they're seeing the world itself as a problem. It's a conception. It's an orientation that I have that's a problem. I may try to fix the world in this way and be socially active for this cause or that cause. and It's all well and good and so forth. Um, but, you know, what will I be in my next life? <laughs> and, 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 and the goal is to not take birth again. So the mystics in all these traditions, the Buddha, Jesus was a mystic. I mean, he went to the forest or to the desert, the story is, for 40 days and, and fasted. He told people to give up everything, just follow him. Most people aren't doing that, although they consider themselves Christians. They're not mystics. In fact, Jesus was a mystic within the Jewish tradition and the Jewish people, where the story goes anyways, they crucified him. So even within the, the spiritual tradition, those who are mystics who take the, the, the teachings very, very seriously and really fully apply them, they become a little estranged from the congregation, the members who are involved from a socio-religious uh, angle of vision. I'll tell you a story. I, when I was I was younger. I was a member of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. You may be familiar with that group, and founded by my guru. And um, I was um, serving in, a, in, a, in, a, in an ashram, in a temple, in a major city in the United States. And across the street from the temple was a uh, Presbyterian church and a new minister came into town. He was a younger man and he had his wife with him. And his wife used to see the devotees moving in and about. She was, they were educated people. They were very interested. She was interested in religion. She used to come to the temple. So she used to come and talk with me every day. Became very attached to me and Krishna consciousness and loved the deities and everything like that. And so I would, she would come to all my lectures and then when she would go home, She'd tell her husband some of the things that Swami was saying. And, you know, the emphasis was, was towards renunciation and that the world is temporary and, uh, and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. So he used to factor some of those insights into his lectures hmm, to tell his congregation, um, to be you know, more serious. He didn't quote me. He didn't say that, but to get, to make them more serious about their um, tradition. And then the members got together and complained to the bishop and had him transferred to the Bahamas. They didn't want to hear it. it was too <laughs> so so there's a <laughs> so there are there's a couple of there's the two basic orientations where there's a more social religious orient or let me give that example. Sometimes the sun is compared to God because without the sun, you know, there'd be no life. There'd be no vegetation. We couldn't see. Um, the mind would not be peaceful as it is when it's on a sunny day 
and so on and so forth. Um, so I was looking at you, the two of you there. Now I can't see you. I hope you're still there. I'm looking. Mm. We're here. Okay, there you are. Okay, yeah. So, um, so if we look at the sun and think, wow, we're so dependent upon the sun. Hmm? Um, we could think of the sun in a sense like God providing for us in so many ways, right? So we, we might revere the sun. We might do the Surya Namaskar and as a yoga asana. Hmm? Appreciate this, that, that powerful feature of nature that we're dependent upon for so many things in our life. So we show gratitude, uh, you know, to the sun and so forth. But in that orientation, looking at the sun as a kind of a metaphor for God, hmm? most people don't think, hmm, the sun is providing all these things for us. It's very nice. But they don't think, what's going on on the sun? Does the sun have a life of its own or does it just exist for us? Does it have its own? What are those nuclear explosions going on in the sun? So from our point of view, God is providing so many things for us, but he has his own life as well, emotional life. We call it rasa. Mm-hmm. And it's explosive. And it turns into play and lila, divine play. And, and that's his own life. Mm-hmm. So what he's doing for us is kind of peripheral to his own existence. But most people are only preoccupied with that. Some people have the courage, fortitude, and the interest to think, what's going on in the sun? Can I go there? Well, you have to have a sun body. You'll burn if you go there in your material body. So, yeah. so, so, So if you want to enter into the life of Krishna, for example, you have to become Krishna-like. You have to become... You have to this is differentiate yourself from your body and your psychology, present psychology. And that's uh, quite a task. But, you know, we're involved in that. So the more that you when you start to do that, you start to have a spiritual experiential orientation to the tradition because you start to experience what the difference between consciousness and matter really is and what the bliss of consciousness is that you are constituted of and the prospect of participation in the world of consciousness, if you will, and the ecstasy of, of all of that. So most people go to church, for example, they're not in ecstasy. Hmm? <laughs> they're, and they're really hoping that God is going to give them a, you know, a new husband or a new wife or a new job or, um, you know, make make the world a better place. It can get better. You know, the the, the, the aspirations <laughs> make the world a better place. Get rid of the fascists or, or you know, w- w- whatever it is. Um, but it only goes so far because if you if you press down here, it comes up, you know, over there. You press down there, it, it comes up over here. That's the nature of the world. So you can, you know, try to make the world better and you can try to have God help you make the world better. It's not a bad idea. But what is the world? Hmm? And the bigger picture is to transcend it altogether. And that's not to leave anybody out, but that's to, by example, show people the way to make a comprehensive solution to the problems hmm? of, of life. Hmm? So the, the mystics, they, I would say, have a spiritual or experiential orientation. They're actually experiencing what it means. Like when I was a kid, I was born and raised in a Catholic family. And so when I heard about a soul, I thought, well, you know, what is it? You know, but nobody had an explanation. What is the soul? I wanted to see it. I wanted to see it. I wanted to experience it and so forth. I thought I should become a priest. And they said, well, take it easy. It's not that, you know, you have to take it that seriously. <laughs> So, you know, I didn't get too far with Catholicism because the priests kind of disappointed me in school from their example. But uh, when I met Prabhupada, then I had a good example. So does that help answer your question? Yes. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Nice, nice to meet you, both of you.
Okay, what else? Another question? So um, Amal Sham had a follow-up question to the first question about Brenda okay. Devi. So um, his question is, is she the same as Bhakti Devi, an expansion of Radharani? What is the connection between all these names and Devi's? Well, the idea here is that Krishna has many shaktis, many potencies. In a broader sense, we say that he has three shaktis. He has a shakti that is the material nature. It's kind of a diluting influence like like smoke is within a fire. And then you have the sparks of the fire, which would be the marginal energy ourselves. We're like the fire, but we're small, so we might be obscured by the smoke, whereas the fire itself won't. And the fire itself, of course, is, is Krishna, but the heat and the light of the fire, that's Krishna's internal energy. Light meaning by which it illumines us, gives us knowing, and heat means the feeling by which, you know, it, it's, uh, um, we, we understand the lovable nature of the absolute. So you have the Maya Shakti, potency of Krishna, you have the, the Jiva Shakti, means ourselves, the sparks, and you have the Swarup Shakti, which is the internal energy of Krishna. Now, within the internal energy, there are many divisions. Mm-hmm. So, um, you ask about Bhakti Devi. Bhakti is a division within this, this internal energy of Krishna. Mm-hmm. Um, in the, I think the, maybe the Paramatma Sandarbha or Bhagavad Sandarbha, Jiva Goswami, it's a list of, and if, drawing from other Puranas, other sacred texts, of so many different divisions within the internal energy. So Bhakti is one of them. Hmm? Bhakti Devi is to personify. Devi means the goddess. So to personify, if you will, uh, that particular Shakti. Typically, we think of Radharani herself, Radha herself as Bhakti Devi, kind of the queen, the goddess of Bhakti. Hmm. That's why I say there's a little bit of Radha in every uh, every devotee, she presides over the, over the, over the blissful aspect of the Krishna's internal energy. Mm-hmm. As an existential aspect, it has a cognitive aspect and a lovable or blissful aspect. So she presides over the latter and of those three, there's a gradation. Mm-hmm. So existential, cognitive and, and, um, loving or, or, or blissful um, from the existential to the to the blissful there's a there's a, there's a gradation so since she presides over the the bliss portion hmm, of of bhakti and um, in hierarchy that of, of the three that is on the top she is sometimes or often referred to as bhakti devi the queen the goddess of bhakti brinda devi is you know devi means goddess so it means goddess of of the forest brinda hmm? um, she's sometimes referred to as leela shakti so she has a role in like a stage hand in the drama of krishna's leela changing the scenery making arranging things behind behind the scenes that um, Radha and Krishna might meet in their, uh, the drama of their romantic uh, intrigue in the village and so forth. And so there are many devis, many goddesses, and uh, basically they are a personification of, often of, of, of one uh, Shakti or, or another, um, or, or they are um, amongst the younger Milk maidens and the Leela, they're all aspects of, of Radharani. So I, I, from your question, that's, you may be asking for more, but I'm not sure what the more might be. So from what I understand of your question, that's my answer. If you want to comment and ask further or clarify, then I'm, I'm, I'm all ears. If not, otherwise we could take another question. He's maybe going to give it a minute to see if anyone 
responds. Um, um, so, oh, so, oh, there we go. Um, thank, thank you very much. That was very helpful. Oh, I can, I can, I can't hear. I can't hear. I can't either. I can't either. I think they're trying to adjust. I think they're trying to adjust. I just want to say, 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 I just Dandavats Maharaj. Um, just so continuing along the uh, the inquiry regarding Shrimati Radharani, um, it's apparently there's some information in the other Puranas where her name is directly mentioned uh, that she might be a few years older than Krishna, whereas in our tradition, of course, there's the story of at the time of Sri Radha's appearance, uh, she did not open her eyes until Krishna was brought before her. Um, and so, and then she opened her eyes for the first time so that, uh, the first thing that she beheld, uh, when she opened her eyes would be Krishna himself and like that. Yeah. So, yes. So, I was thinking that, um, and also in Srila Rupa Goswami's uh, Radha Stuti, what, in one of the verses it says that Sri Radha is the mother of the cowherd boys. And so I was thinking, well, it's it's a little easier to make a statement like that if if she's like just a few years older at least than the other than the cowherd boys, rather than two weeks younger or or more than the, the others, the other coward boys. And so what came to me just kind of as an impression that I wanted to just run by you and see what your impression was, was that um, in other, perhaps in other um, appearances or descents, we could say, of, uh, of Sri Radha Krishna, perhaps in other universes, in other at other times, um, you know, throughout eternity, that uh, perhaps she was a few years older than him at other times, and at this particular time, in this particular uh, uh, descent, we could say, uh, that uh, she's two weeks younger than him, like that. Well, I just wanted to kind of get your right. your feedback, your impression on that. Sure. Right. One thing uh, that comes to mind is that um, different uh of the sacred texts of the Hindus are written from different vantage points. And so they're going to speak about events uh, differently than they're spoken about in other books. For example, how the Mahabharata depicts the, um, the death, the passing of Maharaj Parikshit and how the Bhagavatam does are different. Mm-hmm. That's a central event in the Bhagavatam. And of course, he becomes the, um, inquirer who Sukadeva responds to. And, you know, that's the main, main text and so forth. Um, and the way in which, of course, the Bhagavatam is distinguished from all these texts is it's, 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 it's rasic nature, which it's what, you know, that it tells the story in such a way as that it's just to showcase the feelings. Mm-hmm that one might imbibe those feelings and enter into the text itself. So the other Puranas, for example, uh, are not doing that. Um, and so they're, they're different. And they're speaking from a slightly different angle of vision. Back near a transcendental, entirely perspective. That's just a general point um, that's worth making relative to your question. Otherwise, in the Bhagavatam itself, it is mentioned that uh, shortly after the appearance of Krishna, that Vrindavan became an abode of the goddess of fortune. And this is a covert reference to Radha, I think, in the eighth chapter of the 10th canto. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
it became auspicious uh, that much more because of her presence there and so on and so forth. So she is, from the Bhagavatam's perspective, younger than Krishna, hmm? as appearing in the Aprakavila, both of them eternal, they have no beginning, and so forth right. and so on. But as yeah. far as the play goes, the leela goes, the drama goes, she's younger. And that's played out throughout all the Goswami's books. So one way, one way to look at that is we, as a lineage, uh, coming from Rupa Goswami, Sanatana Goswami, Jiva Goswami, and so forth, have been offered a particular window into the Leela where we can enter mm. and, and, and have service and participate in the divine play of, of Radha and Krishna. There are many windows, many, they're called Prakashas. I call them windows, but sections. <laughs> and they're all, imagine if you go to a, if you go to a theater, um, and nowadays they have theaters and there are many movies going on at the same time. So you go into a theater, you go into that door, that movie's always playing. You go into this door, that movie's always playing. <laughs> and this one, or if you're yeah. going a long distance flight on a, across the, the, the ocean, then they have sometimes that same facility. Where on one channel, this one movie is always playing. The next channel, this other movie is always playing. So all of the leelas of Krishna are always playing all of the time somewhere. Right? Yes. And uh, so uh, there, there's a particular Prakash in, in one sense. <laughs> there are Prakash is within the Prakash, but a particular section in which we have been given access to enter into eternally. And, and so, uh, there are, there are others, and that is one way, and some, some lineages, other, other lineages, other sampradayas outside of the Gota sampradaya who are, uh, Vaishnavas may look at that particular subject, the age of Radha compared to Krishna differently, and it doesn't necessarily have to be invalid, as you are saying. It may be in a Prakash that, where it, it shows up like that, it's it's it's, it's possible. <laughs> but our concern is <laughs> what the opportunity has been offered to us, and we should take advantage of that. Okay. Yes, thank you so Shri much, Raj. Thank you. Shri Radhe Ki Jai. Jai. Okay. Another so, question. Yeah, um, Indra has a question. Let me. Scroll up some. Where is it? Okay. So her question is, um, does every yuga have a specific Bhagavatam? This Srimad Bhagavatam seems um, really designed for this Kali Yuga. Are there, uh, are there like other yuga versions? Well, the Bhagavatam, you know, in a more, in a broader context is, is the story of the life of Krishna, if you will. Um, and it's thought that there are different versions of it in, in, in the celestial realm. There are different versions of it. Um, it's, uh, let me give you an example. Um, we have this Srimad Bhagavatam, <clears throat> excuse me, and it tells the story of, of Krishna's manifest Leela some thousands of years ago on earth. 500 some years ago, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu appeared, who was considered to be Krishna, Radha, and Krishna combined in one, appearing to teach us how to enter into Krishna's world, if you will, right? Um, and given that Bhagavatam is the story of Krishna Leela, we look deeply inside of Krishna Leela, you're going to find the genesis of the Gaur Leela of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, why he appeared 500 years ago, Krishna combined with Radha. What's the reason for that? That reason is found within Krishna Leela. Krishna's seen the love of Radha and the gopis for him, and he thinks that he can't reciprocate in kind, so he just bows to their love. It, and, and then he wants to taste it himself, experience it. So this is Krishna taking birth, trying to Experience himself from the vantage point of Radha. It's very peculiar and interesting, but it's a, it's a, it's a extension of the story of the Bhagavatam, which is ongoing. And then we have a book called the Chaitanya Bhagavat that describes that 
So there's another edition, if you will, of the Bhagavatam, even within the time period that we're in and and so forth. So what to speak of 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 beyond that. The story has no limits. If we look at the Bhagavatam like that, in essence, what it is. Hmm? A story about the life of Krishna's aesthetic rapture in relation to his devotees that has no beginning, that has no end. It's ongoing. It's ever fresh and new. And um, therefore, the Bhagavatam is not static and limited to, you know, whatever it is, 18,000 verses. But that's the version we have. So we'll pay attention to that. Hope that helps. Another question? So uh, there's another question yep. from Sharda. Um, let me okay. okay, so her question um, is Pranams Maharaj. Do the Gaudiya Vaishnavas place importance on the change that happened in the life of Adi Shankara, who was said to be who is said to initially be said to have been an impersonalist, but took to bhakti yoga. I was given a Bhagavad Gita commentary um, by him years ago by a family member and still haven't read it completely. And also my father would sing the song written by him called Bhaja Govindam. That was the question. You're frozen right now. Is, is Grudy frozen for anyone else? Are we? We think that uh, Adi Shankar uh, to Bhakti. Um, hello, can you hear me? You're, you're kind of breaking up um, a little bit. Um, could you start over? Because I, I don't think that we heard anything. I just can you hear me like, now. Yeah. Okay. Um, I. Shankar ever uh, converted to bhakti, if you will. Um, uh, he terms that uh, in which he expresses uh, some love for Krishna and for Krishna Lila. The famous one that your father chants uh, sings is 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 is, is very well known. Bhajakovinda, 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 Mudamute. And sometimes. Gaudiya Vaishnavas use that as evidence for to support the idea that inherently Shankar was a bhakta and only overtly was he otherwise. The followers of Shankar would not agree with that. They would have a different interpretation of the song Bhajagavinda. They have a different interpretation of bhakti. They acknowledge that bhakti has a role that it can play in bringing about enlightenment, but um, they place gyan, knowledge, over devotion. Knowledge is more important to them than devotion. From our perspective, devotion is the end of knowledge. Um, so, the, you know, there are two different schools. Shankar's Gita commentary we will uh, consistently um, take that um, position. The gyan, uh, transcends bhakti, or the, there's a purpose to bhakti other than itself, which is, which is knowledge. We look at bhakti as, um, it, it, it is, um, bhakti should be performed for bhakti, hmm? not for anything else, not even knowledge, because it is the end of knowledge. To, to love him is to know him. Hmm? Something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend Shankar's Gita commentary unless you want to enter into a very heady, um, uh, discussion, mm-hmm. comparison of bhakti as the goal compared to knowledge as the goal. We see knowledge, as the Gita says, to be sattvic, bhakti to be nirguna or transcendent. Now, um, Shankar doesn't see it like that. He sees it differently. But um, 
it, it is also mentioned in the Puranas that um, Vishnu asked Shiva to incarnate as Shankar and, and do what he did. So from the Vaishnav perspective, you know, we do say he's ultimately a devotee, but his followers, they, they won't, for the most part, agree with that. There are, there are some, and they've converted, like Sridhar Swami, the famous commentator on the Bhagavatam and so forth. Thank you. Hope that helps. Thank you, Hare Krishna. Yes, yes. it does. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Nice to see you there. Yes. What Thank else? you. So there's one last okay. question from Rasa Leela. Um, is my, did, am I breaking up? Do I, am I like freezing up any? Is my connection okay? Your connection? Me. Okay. Cause I wasn't fine, sure. If it was maybe my internet or something. Okay. So. Um, yeah, Russell Leo's question. Thank you. And um, I, maybe this is a little bit connected to what you just said. Uh, I got this question from a Christian friend today. And, mm. uh, um, I thought maybe you can give a much more profound and deep and beautiful and poetic <laughs> answer to it than, than I can. And he asked for my opinion on like the distinction between search for love through devotion to truth uh, or search for truth through devotion to love. Like, what is the distinction there? And the distinction yeah. between, could you give me that again? The distinction between searching for love through devotion yeah. to truth. Or searching for truth through the devotion to love. Let me put it like this. Um, if I translate truth as knowledge in this instance, then there are those I ask you, what is better to love to exist or to exist to love? To exist to love. Noble, I said makes more of you as well. So, some people uh, love in pursuit. Yeah, my back. Can you hear me? A minute. Yeah, can you start over? Okay. I was saying that some people, they engage in love or devotion to find truth. Hmm? To find, to, to arrive at knowledge. And in the context of, of the Hindu traditions, it would be, that knowledge would be the knowledge of what I am, hmm, beyond appearances of what I am that can be illusory. Hmm. So I'm an Atma, not a body or a mind, I'm a unit of pure consciousness, and to re, and I'm eternal. Right? I'm not, I have a capacity to know. I have a capacity to love. So now I'm living and with some trepidation because I might die just walking across the street. I have to eat. So I have to keep busy to find, find food and, and so on and so forth. My existence, material existence is threatened. So there's a kind of a current of fear perceived or unperceived and anxiety that that runs throughout all of life in this world so now imagine if you could come to the truth not only theoretically realize it but i'm that's huge what a relief that would be all your anxieties would go away instead we're always trying to be something because we don't know what we are. What we are is more than what we could ever think in our mind that we could be. Hmm? If we get good insight from beyond the mind, from sacred texts and saintly persons, then we can embrace with our minds an idea that transcends the limits of the mind and what the mind could come up with. I could be this. I could be that. I could be that. When I was very young, I used to sit in California, in the redwoods, and think, what will I be? And everything I thought of 
I thought it out as far as I could, what that would be like. And then I got disappointed. I went back and started <laughs> from scratch. So I ended up becoming a monk. So it worked out. Um, but the point is that if you can come to the truth that what you are is not a mind, thoughts, uh, or thing, or a thing, things and thoughts, thoughts about things, this is all this illusory. Hmm? The things, you know, he, 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 you married a prince charming and you turn into a monster. What can be done? You know, it happens. Hmm? Just like in dreams, real life is like that too, only over extended period of time. Hmm? So, so if you could come to self-realization, hmm, realize that I'm eternal. Wow. What a, what a, re, what a relief that would be. That would be a bl- blissful in itself in that it was the end of all suffering in the least, right? Hmm? So you could really love to exist. You could really love the truth that I am. I am and I always will be. And it's blissful. I don't have to get anything. Hmm? I don't have to add anything to myself. I'm full. I'm complete. Hmm? Like, like Sukadeva in the Bhagavatam. He was complete. He just went to the forest after he was born. He was just complete. He didn't need anything. Hmm? So he was loving to exist. So that's one thing. So loving for truth. Now I'm not sure exactly how you put it in your question. And, but I hope I'm answering it. One person may love for truth. So they may love the idea of realizing that they're eternal and pursue that with all their mental, intellectual, and physical ability. Hmm? Live in the Himalayas, maybe, maybe in a cave, who knows, and, and become successful and love to exist. Now, the other idea is from the bhakti point of view, to exist, to love. Hmm? That seems like a higher idea. Hmm? So, while there may be, there is a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a certain measure of penetration into transcendence where people are loving to exist. And then the, there's, there's a, there's another division, a deeper penetration where people are existing only to love. Hmm? That's bhakti. So in Vrindavan, for example, gopis, gopas, they're existing only to love Krishna. Let me give you an example. When you love, you're not very worried about your existence. You could live in a, in a hollow of a tree. If you, if you have, if you really, if you love someone, there you are. You don't need anything. Hmm? It makes, it, it makes knowing and it makes existing less important. Hmm? So Vrindavan, for example, is depicted as a simple village place. It's not the great Brahman. Or self-realized yogis and munis. It's a simple place. People, the people there are like, like uneducated. They just love Krishna. But, the, but there, that actually constitutes a deeper penetration into transcendence where they are existing, but only for the purpose of loving. So that's the bhakti perspective. So you could have the pursuit of truth love for the for the pursuit of truth what i am or you could have love for its own sake hmm? not as not to not as a means to acquire knowledge but that would be a byproduct of that love do you follow me so it's a little bit complicated um what again was this question is love for truth or so the distinction between searching for love through truth or searching for truth through love. Searching for love through truth. 
We're searching for truth through love. Searching for, <laughs> searching for truth through love. I, I would say that love is the truth. That is the end of the search. And searching for truth, searching for truth through love, searching for love through truth. I, I, I don't think that um, searching for knowledge necessarily translates out into finding the fullest measure of love, but searching for love results in a, in highest knowledge, highest truth. Anyway, something like that. We should we should love for its we should. Our love should be wise. Hmm. So if we want to love, we want to love forever. We have to have an object that we love that's going to exist forever. You want to love forever after, right? And they, and they lived happily forever after. And so the movie ends. So if you want to, you have to love wisely. It means you have to focus your love on an object that's not ephemeral, that's not here today and gone tomorrow. So Krishna is such an object, a consciousness constituted object that you, as a spark of consciousness, can can love. So there should be some wisdom, some some knowledge. Some you can love falsely. You can, or you can love truthfully, so to speak. You can love in knowledge, but but not. But bhakti itself, or love itself, is 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 the uh, is the end of knowledge. Knowledge is secondary hmm, to loving. Truth is secondary in a sense, to loving or consumed within loving. So I think we should pursue um, truth through loving and find that it's it's in the loving itself. Just like they say, the journey is the destination. Pay attention. <laughs> now, <laughs> you're already there. To think about that. <laughs> okay. I hope that was a little helpful. And that takes us just about to the end of time. Right. That was Any the last question? question. Short question. Oh, yeah. Okay. Good. Well, yeah, nice to be with awesome. you all. And I hope to connect with you again next week. Hare Krishna.